Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. Before or else, I acknowledge that we broadcast to you from the stolen, unceded lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nations, who are the traditional custodians of this land. I pay respect to elders past and present and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and the violence of the colonial project is ongoing. I stand in solidarity with black communities both here and around the world. And whilst that's not a new or revolutionary statement uh, and that racism is is very much not a new problem in this country, this moment feels like an especially pertinent time to say it and then say it again and say it louder. Coming up on the show today, joining me in just under 10 minutes, I have the editor of Liminal. Now, if you don't know Liminal, they do absolutely incredible work. They are an online publishing initiative that showcases the work of Asian Australian writers And they've recently published a new digital series called Glitch, uh, and it features essay, visual, audio, illustration, games, there's even Instagram filters. Uh, So I'm very excited to chat to Leah about that. But also, just yesterday, they have announced a new book they have coming out. It is called Collisions, Fictions of the Future. It's a liminal anthology, and it's to be published through Pantera Press later this year. And it features both emerging and established Indigenous writers and writers of colour that were long listed for the inaugural Liminal Fiction Prize in 2019. Liminal have been doing so much great work for so many years, so I'm excited to chat to Leah a little bit about the Liminal journey. Also, a little bit later on, Kath Moore joins me to talk about her debut YA novel, Metal Fish Falling Snow. That one is out through text publishing. (laughs) 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Liminal Magazine is an online space for the exploration, interrogation and celebration of the Asian Australian experience. It was founded by writer and photographer and editor Leah Jing McIntosh in late 2016 and Liminal publishes an interview with an Asian Australian every Monday as well as showcasing different writing and art projects and a prize. There's so much more. There's lots to talk about. Uh, Their latest digital series is called Glitch and it spans essay, visual, audio, illustrations, games, Instagram filters, and a bunch more. And Liminal have also just announced their new anthology, Collisions, Fictions of the Future, is going to be coming out in November, that one through Pantera Press. Joining me to talk all about this and the Liminal journey today is founder and editor, Leah. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks, Steph. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's it's so nice to um, have you on the show. I, you know, I'm a long time admirer of the work of Liminal. I thought we could have a little bit of a chat about the whole Liminal journey. You founded it in 2016, and you know, I feel like it's just gone from strength to strength. Can you tell us a little bit about why you created it in the first place? Yeah, no worries. So it was very much just a response to a lack of Asian Australian representation in the arts and like more broadly the media um, and it actually just started because I was I, I had been doing my masters in London and I flew home and I just I really wanted a kind of community <laughs> um, so I started reaching out to old friends and just having long conversations kind of about what it meant to be. Um, Asian and Australian and neither and both um, kind of um, just in this in this moment where like in 2016 it very much was Donald Trump had just been elected, um, Brexit had just happened and it was like kind of all this moment of upheaval um, in a kind of similar and not similar way to what's happening now. Um, yeah, so it kind of came out of that moment and I didn't think it would ever be um, bigger, as big as it is now. <laughs> I don't think we ever think um, projects will become what they become. Mm. I feel like it's just a testament to how hungry people are for this kind of work that you're creating. It's incredibly thoughtful and thought-provoking and, you know, you started doing, you know, you started Liminal with doing the interviews every week and then you're still doing that, but it's kind of transformed into so many different things. You've had the prize and yeah. um, can you tell me a little bit about that, I suppose, evolution and how you've seen it kind of shift and change over the years? Um, it's been really, it's been really incredible to have the kind of response um, which we which we've had because I just kind of put it out into the world um, and it traveled. <laughs> um, and that's like very rarely kind of a thing that happens with a project that you just start on your own. But I think um, in it, people saw something that they also needed. And it's been kind of wild because I thought of it very much as a textual project, but it's been it's really become a kind of community project. Mm-hmm. So we started publishing interviews, long-form interviews with photographs. And um, I think halfway through the first year, we had this incredible um, opportunity to work with the Signal Young Creatives Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they kind of took us through what it would mean to produce an event. So we produced our first event with them and um, had this incredible moment where we were seeing people in person, <laughs> not just digitally. And I realize now how much I miss that um, <laughs> in 2020, <laughs> um, just to like really interact with people on like kind of a physical level where you get to talk to community, people that you've been talking to on Twitter, et cetera. Mm. Um, so we started doing these um, performance nights where we would program um, a wide range of incredible artists of colour um, and we would work, we have worked with like the Emerging Writers Festival and the Melbourne Writers Festival and um, the Australian Short Story um, Festival and it's just been, it's been such a nice thing to have like this very textual, very internet thing become more of a community focused um, experience. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, even just looking at the about page of um, Liminal earlier today and, and seeing how <laughs> the team has grown and seeing how many uh, amazing people you have as interviewers. Like I, I was like, there's over like 30 interviewers and you have like a, a big kind of team now that is, 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 is helping you drive it. Can, can you talk a little bit about what that's been like to kind of expand who's working on? Yeah. So like the first year was very much just like a few people um, kind of doing it very much pro bono. <laughs> um, and when we got our first grant, we had this very exciting moment of being able to commission other Asian Australians to keep talking to um, other Asian Australian creatives. So we kind of would ask people we'd already interviewed um, if they had people that they wanted to interview and we would kind of create this very interconnected network, which was exciting because mm. <laughs> it really didn't exist prior to that. Um, well, actually, no. <laughs> Peril existed and I think we very much do stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, but... I think there are just it's so exciting to have multiple avenues um, to kind of create communities within communities and like expand um, and interlink in that mm. sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we've had some really really fun um, moments where we've asked people and they've interviewed um, people they know very well and created some really intimate um, pieces of writing together, um, which I don't know would exist kind of outside this format so I feel very grateful and very honored that people trust us with these thoughts and with their time Mm. yeah I'd love to talk a little bit about your newest digital series glitch like I'm I'm a massive fangirl for this like I feel (laughs) like it you know, it's kind of the best in digital writing right now or the digital experience. The, you know, the series for anybody that hasn't checked it out, do check it out, liminalmag.com. Uh, liminal um, you know, it spans, you know, there's essays, there's there's writing, there's visuals, there's comics, there's games. Can you talk me through, I suppose, like what goes into your thinking behind a project like this? Oh, thank you so much. It, um, it was quite... Um, interesting. So last year I kind of applied to the city of Melbourne for some funding and they gave it to us to create a few chapbooks, like physical chapbooks. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as Corona hit, um, we asked them if we could kind of shift it into a digital mode um, and and essentially instead of creating physical books, use that funding to pay more artists to do other work. So I think in the end where we'll end up publishing and paying 25 artists um, for their work, which is so exciting to be able to, like, give back to community during this time especially. Um, 
So in that moment when we decided to switch kind of into a digital mode, we were thinking about our first of the, these three um, series and how we really wanted to think about what it could mean to create art digitally. Um, and we were curating and programming the series in like late March, April, and we were really thinking about this new ways of communication and wanting to recognize this new way of being in the world. And in the middle of one of our editorial conversations, like the Zoom glitched and it froze for a few seconds. And <laughs> it was just a very funny moment where we were like, oh, here it is. Mm. <laughs> well, um, we'll give it like, it feels like we're really having these odd digital moments and we essentially just kind of profit this image of the glitch to these um, these artists. So we commissioned an, uh, a comic, some essays, which are very interactive, and some games. Um, and what's really exciting is two of these games um, by Shastra Deo and Cecil Richard have actually already been shortlisted for the HCP Digital Art Prize, which is kind of wild. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I feel just so so grateful to these artists for giving us their their art in order, yeah, to share that. Um, and both of those games really trace a kind of grief um, and the kind of digging into what it means to lose to lose someone, mm. um, which I think is like very apropos to this this moment where many of us are shifting our relations like and losing things in this world mm. um yeah so that's been really fun and we have two more coming out um for i think in august and september so keep an eye out for those <laughs> I, I just feel like it's you know exactly as you said you know exploring what it means to create online I definitely feel like as a as an observer as a listener as a viewer it's made me it's expanded my thinking of what it means to create online and and what art is like even uh thinking about the amazing Instagram filters that um were created for this project I was like yes like who makes these I, I just hadn't really I suppose put a lot of thought into that and it just yeah it really made me think about that and I love that um, because it is art and it is, um, yeah, it's yeah. interactive and it's great and, yeah. It just, it was funny because we were like, well, where do these digital things sit? Like, because in traditional media, we don't consider an Instagram filter art, mm. but it's like being created by an essentially an artist. <laughs> like, how do we engage with that? Um, so that was really fun because we actually asked someone we previously interviewed, um, Helena Dong, at the very start of the series, to make us an Instagram filter. And her filters are so interesting and intricate. Um, and I think she's really kind of at the forefront of something. Mm. Um yeah. And I just love that. Like there are so many, well, sorry, there's so many elements no. to the the work that are interactive and for the audience to kind of co, cure, or not curate, like kind of uh, be a part of the work and make those decisions about like, you know, what you do with the Instagram filter or how you play the game and which decisions you make. And I think that's yeah. a really cool part of it. Yeah. It was, it's just really interesting how do how do you bring the audience in in this moment where everyone is so kind of like isolated and like axiomatic kind of like this very everyone feels very disconnected how do we create art that involves the watcher um to a certain degree i'm always really interested in in that 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think this series has done it really well and I'm so excited for uh, the next iterations of it. Um, if you have just joined us, we are chatting with Leah Jing McIntosh, uh, the editor and founder of Liminal. Uh, Leah, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, this exciting new announcement. Um, just this week, you have announced that um, Liminal has a new anthology called Collisions, Fictions of the Future. It's coming out through Pantera Press a little bit later this year. I know that the um, the people that are featured in this anthology are um, people that contributed to the Liminal Prize. Firstly, can you tell us a little bit about the prize and, yeah, how you kind of got to this point of, of an anthology? Yeah, it's been a long journey, Ben. <laughs> um, so about two years ago, around about this time, I became uh, I became really interested in how many non-white writers had won Australian fiction prizes mm. um, because I felt like that was a really quantifiable way of like, kind of assessing the Australian literary scene. Um, so I drew up these lists of previous winners of like the Miles Franklin and the Patrick White and the Stella, and I just couldn't help but notice the small number of non-white writers. Um, so two years ago in 2018, um, 7% of the Miles Franklin winners, 6% of the Patrick White winners, 7% of the Vogel Prize, 16% of the Stella, 12% of the Victorian Prize, and 0% of the Elizabeth Jolly winners mm-hmm. had been writers of colour. And that just seemed so odd <laughs> because, like, it felt surely we could not be this untalented. Um <laughs> It's, it's, ridic- it's ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, essentially I thought um, to run a prize that was like just for Indigenous writers and writers of colour. Um, and I think this was two-pronged, kind of like a fuck you to the white literary establishment. Um, but also just more interested in signalling to writers of colour that we believed in their excellence. Mm. Um, and there's just... There's actually a great quote by Samuel R. Delaney to a young writer, and he says, um, I'll read it. <laughs> um, the fact that you're writing, submitting, and winning awards means you've already crashed through the greatest and most destructive hurdle of racism that sits in our way, the one that gives so many of us a self-image that says, who am I to think I could write anything worth reading, that I have anything worth saying, or that anyone might take joy in hearing it? How dare I think I have the right to speak, write, or be read? Mm. And that, I feel like that is so powerful. And I just, we, I just really wanted to kind of help chip away at this destructive hurdle by creating a prize that just very clearly stated, um, we want to read your writing and we believe it to be good. Mm. Um, and I, so that's kind of where that sprung out of. Um, and so we ran this prize in 2019 and we looked for fiction of a new world. So not the stuff of flying cars or robots, but like kind of a future that pulled against or wove together Australia's fabricated histories um so yeah (laughs) sorry a bit of a spiel no I it's it's really (laughs) incredible that you've uh, put the prize together and it's really I'm so excited about this anthology can can you tell us a little bit about um I suppose what it's been like to actually put it together to go from having your kind of short list to um yeah to to kind of putting it together to to be a finished thing yeah, it's been, like, quite a journey. Um, we decided very early on that we wanted to have multiple editors 
um, so multiple voices kind of working together as community. Um, so I edited it with Adalia Nash Hussein, Shertan, and Hassan Abu. Um, and they, we all worked together with the long-listed writers to edit and really polish these pieces um, and to create and curate this anthology. Um, so earlier this, this month, we signed with um, Pantera Press, which is really exciting, <laughs> um, and they'll just be publishing this anthology um, in November. Um, and I think it feels strange to be making anything this year, <laughs> mm. like really weird. Um, but I think um, I think it is kind of necessary in this moment to contemplate our shared future. Mm. Um, and I, I wonder if, like, listening to and engaging with new perspectives, um, we can kind of examine and imagine a new future together. Um so that's kind of <laughs> it's kind of the outcome of um, what, what was me just being quite angry about Australian literary prizes. <laughs> it's it's honestly incredible, just like going from feeling really angry and frustrated about you know what is a, a ridiculous situation to 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 creating this amazing tangible object. It's um yeah, I hope you can be really proud. Liminal is just <laughs> doing amazing, amazing work. Um, I, yeah, thank you. We really I couldn't do it without everyone else. I think that would be a mess. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just mentioned your, uh, you know, great kind of editorial team. Can you can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, what goes into those editorial discussions when putting together something like this anthology? Um, I think it just it really involves kind of a working together and a listening. Um, we're all good friends, which makes it quite like amazingly easy <laughs> um, where we have like at the moment we've been having Zoom discussions about once a week um, kind of thinking through how best to present this work to the world so in the end we actually um, created the book in terms of the architecture of a collision mm. which is like like a so we start off our first section is bodies so we're looking at kind of what it means to be a body in this in this world um, and then I think the next section is momentum um, and then the third is contact so just kind of this arc of um, kind of colliding um, but like as with all anthologies. <laughs> Um, you know, <laughs> organizing principles are always a bit odd, <laughs> but we did our best. Um, yeah, just kind of, I think a real listening and a real sensitivity to each other and also to our authors has made it a really kind of seamless um, end product, which is kind of just a real joy. <laughs> mm. And it looks so beautiful as well. Can I just say the cover reveal? Very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, our designer is really, she's been with us from the start and she's just Annie Lure. She's a real joy to work with. Um, and, yeah, well, <laughs> it feels odd. It's uh, <laughs> finally almost done. It's so exciting. It is um, coming out in November for anybody listening and uh, wanting to get a copy and have to wait just a little bit. Um, <laughs> Leah, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Beth. <laughs>
We were just chatting there with writer, photographer, founder and editor of Liminal, Leah Jing McIntosh. We were talking all about the latest digital series that Liminal has published called Glitch and also about their brand new anthology that is coming out later this year. It is called Collisions, Fictions of the Future. It's coming out through Pantera Press uh, and that one is coming out in November. So very excited about that. But also just go and check out the Liminal uh, website. All of the amazing Glitch series is up there. It's liminalmag.com. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Metal Fish Falling Snow is Kath Moore's debut YA novel and in it a young girl dreams of travelling to Paris with her mother to find a new way of life and sorry to find a new life and a new way of being herself but when her mother dies that young girl Dylan ends up on a very different trip around Australia. Kath Moore is a writer, director and screenwriter and she joins me now to talk all about this book. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks so much for having me Beth. Uh, It's a pleasure. So this is your, your debut novel and you have a background in screenwriting. Can you talk to me a little bit about this transition into, into books? Yeah. Um, well, originally the, the story was, was written as a screenplay um, many, many years ago um, and I was working in collaboration with the producer and director from the feature film Looking for Alibrandi. Um, so it was a really collaborative process um, and we film often these things take forever and then they never actually eventuate. So that was the case with um, this particular screenplay. So I put it in the bottom drawer, so to speak, for many years. Um, but I, but the, the character's voice um, I thought was still relevant because it, it reflected my own personal lived experience. So mm-hmm. a couple of years ago I thought, well, maybe I can try to situate the story in a different landscape. So um, tried my hand at prose, which is was a really different experience, very liberating, um, and took the this, this story somewhere else. Um, so in a way, I think that process of adaptation has allowed the narrative and the character to be who I think they were supposed to be. Mm. Um, so it's been a really interesting journey. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. I, I suppose, what is the, the page and, and writing in prose offered you as a writer that you feel is perhaps different from your other screen work? Oh, gosh, um, a very different headspace. It's really liberating. Um, and often when you come from um, a form which is quite reductive, as, as writing for the screen can be and economical, it's quite a luxury to be able to go down these rabbit holes um, for a little while longer and, and, you know, find your way back to the page, but but just sit with a, a character and perhaps let them lead you a little bit more so than you might do if, if you were writing um, in a screenplay form where you really do have to think about, um, you know, visual grammar and what's really um, necessary to be on the page. Um, it's, it's that very, very difficult balance writing for the screen between brevity and detail. You still need to bring that sense of place and space to the page, but in a way that allows other voices to, you know, interpret the work, you know, um, editors and, and directors and cinematographers and so forth. But writing um, in, in prose form, all of those different, um, yeah, agendas aren't there. So you are sitting with yourself mm. in a very different way than writing for the screen, which is a, a blessing 
and a burden. You know, you don't have, um, you know, those other practitioners that you might be working with to, to bounce ideas off. So it was much more of a leap of faith writing in, in prose. But in doing that, I also was able to find different trajectories that, that I hadn't managed to find in screenplay form. Mm. And for people that haven't uh, heard about the story, can you tell us a little bit about the plot? Yeah. Um, so the, the story revolves around 14-year-old Dylan, um, whose mother dies very suddenly in an accident, which um, she believes was of her own doing. Um, and so then after her mother dies, she's taken on a road trip by her mother's boyfriend, Pat, who's a beer rep. And they, they are travelling across outback Australia um, to so that she can live with her um, father, her absent father's side of the family, which is the black side of her. Her mother is white and her father, her absent father, who she's never known, is, is black. So along the way, she has to reconcile um, this shift um, between a world which has been known um, and ideas about whiteness and stepping into a very new, and for her, um, a, a space full of fear and uncertainty, living with a family that she's uh, never known. So... A lot of the ideas in the book uh, reflect my own um, uh, reckoning, uh, mm. being of mixed heritage myself and and understanding the reasons why we often associate emotions with particular colours um, and ideas about and the politics of skin. Um, so, yeah, that that's her journey um, to finding a different sense of herself or to whole halves as she comes to understand her her mixed heritage. Mm. Yeah, I'm interested, as you said, it, it the character almost echoes um, parts of your own um, self-exploration in a way. Can you tell me a little yeah. bit about what that, uh, I suppose that process was like as you were, as you were writing it and it was also, I, I suppose, like quite re- reflective or for, of your experience or for you? Yeah. Um, well, some of it was, um, I think, drawn from uh, subconscious memories or anecdotes um, that I have grown up with. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you think about memory um, uh, and the way in which we construct narratives that aren't necessarily true but are based on our own experiences. So that's something that I had to confront and qualify in in the book. Um, but on the other hand, a, a lot of it I, I ended up, collaborating with my dad which was not something that I expected to do which was really wonderful um and in that I I learned a a great deal about um that side of my family tree and uh different anecdotal material found its way into the book so in, in that sense the last part of the book when Dylan um, who ends up living with her grandfather, who's ostensibly based on my own father, um, is this idea of, um, yeah, finding a sense of self um, that's perhaps unexpected, but that also, you know, it's this truism that you can you can locate yourself differently in the world and, you know, have a different relationship with yourself at any point in time. And, and that can be quite um, painful and um, confronting, but for both Dylan and for myself, it was a really redemptive, um, you know, space and journey and, and ongoing. Mm. Um, it, it's not like I don't think you ever, you know, come to the end of the road of becoming. Mm. I think you just find different things along along the way. And I, I think it's quite common for people of mixed heritage to at some point have to prioritise or weigh into one aspect of, of their 
their mixed cultures rather than find an easy balance between the two. I hope it's getting easier, but certainly for me, um, you know, there were no reference points to, um, you know, being of Afro-Caribbean um, background or heritage. So it was very easy for me as a kid, almost, you know, a kind of um, a sense of sink or swim to identify with my Anglo-Irish mm. side of the family. But so uh, that left a, a huge big kind of, you know, gap to reconcile. And it, it's not been until I'm now in my mid-40s that I, I'm stepping into a space which feels much more known. Mm. It's interesting that you say that you, I suppose, worked with your dad um, on on it because I think there are some really strong central themes in the book around family and what makes a family. And you know, there's a really tender and loving relationship between Dylan and and her mum's uh, partner mm-hmm. as they kind of move through grief together. Can you describe that relationship? Yeah, it's um, yes, it's it's they they're both kind of antagonistic forces to one another at the very beginning of the book Um, and as you say the thing that binds them together is their shared sense of of loss and grief Um, and they have to work towards a point where they can both uh, understand one another through um, that prism but um, for a long way through the journey Pat um, holds Dylan responsible for the death of her mother and and his, his love of his life so they've both they're both kind of disconnected. They don't have anything really to hold on to. They don't have a sense of place really anymore because Dylan's mother was the only one holding them um, in the small country town where they were all living. Um, so they're kind of free-floating or free-falling through this story world and they have to both navigate each other's um, realities and worldviews, which are very disparate. So they they poke at each other. Uh, they have very different sensibilities. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it's, it was interesting for me to see the times in which Pat allowed Dylan and her very unique way of seeing the world um, when he allowed, you know, that, that space to exist where he could understand her sense of loss and vice versa too. Dylan has this... Um, almost psychic ability to, to step into people's um, past memories or, mm. um, yeah, moments, anecdotes from their past. And so she has an interesting kind of access to Pat's interior landscape that he's really not aware of. But it is a mechanism that allows her to understand his own um, uh, emotional realities much more than, than he, he understands until he gets to the end of the story and, and realises, um, you know, the... The, the sum of, of their journey together. Mm-hmm. If you have just joined us, uh, we are chatting with Kath Moore about her debut novel, Metal Fish Falling Snow. Um, Kath, this book is really uh, centred quite strongly in, in this country, in this landscape. It, it almost feels like um, a, a character as, a, as the setting. It just feels yeah. so uh, vivid and, and live. Can you, can you talk a little bit about this element of your work? Yeah, um, I think I have a, a preoccupation with the natural land and the landscape. When I was little, I grew up on a, a horse farm just outside of Queanbeyan um, in New South Wales. So, And I think as a kid, such an uh, awesome age to be plonked in the middle of the bush because your senses are so much more aware of what, what is going on around you. And um, it was a really seminal time um, for me. Um, and it's it stayed with me, this this idea about um, nature as a, a space um, in, in which to connect to yourself very differently. And, 
you know, a lot of people were so lucky to live in a country that allows us to, to step into that if you allow yourself to have a relationship with nature. Mm. Um, and I guess that's something that, that, you know, surfaces in the book, whether it, it was a conscious decision of mine or not. I, I do think that there is what I wanted to speak to much broadly was this idea that as settlers we're constantly negotiating um, this landscape. Mm. We don't um, have, a, you know, a, a natural way in and I think we both fear uh, and are intoxicated by the land on which we live. It's a problematic space for, for many different reasons. Um, and, yeah, I think that's, you know, I'm... I'm also, you know, that's part of my identity, being a settler, and, and you know, that, that inquiry that I express and explore in my work, I think, is, is, is reflective of that ongoing space and the side of tension um, in terms of who we are to this land and, and how it is that we, we reconcile living on a land that is not ours and, and trying to find a way in which to, to connect to it. Um, and, and I think that's something that, that all of the characters in the book, well, certainly Pat and Dylan, um, that's also part of their understanding. This disconnect between themselves is also reflected in the disconnect between, you know, th themselves on the land as well as they travel through it. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting and complex and I, I definitely something that I think about a lot. Um, Kath, uh, just before I let you go, I'm, I'm interested, um, you know, this book is, uh, it's, it's for young adults. Um, what kind of led you down um, this path to, to create for, for a younger audience? Um, I don't think I did. I think, I think it's something that came to the fore because I switched um, mediums. When mm. I wrote it as a screenplay, it was really interesting because perhaps it was that Pat's story or Pat's perspective, it was, it was much more of a two-hander, I think. So it probably fits more squarely within um, an adult drama um, that just happened to have um, a, a teenage protagonist. But but when I stepped into prose, I think Dylan's voice became um, so primary to the, the, the telling of, of the story and so necessary um, that I think it, it probably, um, you know, slipped quite easily into the space of YA. But having said that, I, I do think that there are other issues um, and, and storylines that, that you know, cut across mm. into an adult readership because, yeah, we are talking broadly about the idea of, of identity um, and, and family and a sense of, you know, we're all desperate for a, a sense of belonging and the opportunity to love and be loved. You know, those are kind of, you know, aspects of humanity that I think um, are probably a broader readership would also respond to. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I can definitely see um, there's things in there for everybody. Um, Kath, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much much for your time this afternoon. Oh, no, thank you so much, Beth. It's been a pleasure. That was Kath Moore there speaking about her debut novel. It is called Metal Fish Falling Snow. It's out now through text publishing. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website 